that must have been some game. I didn't watch the game, but I've heard a lot about it. And I guess it went something like this. Probably people were leaving the stands and people were drinking one more beer of sadness if they were for um, the Chiefs and whooping it up if they were for the 49ers. And then something kind of miraculous happens. And I think I understand a little bit about the miracle business. I don't know if I would classify making three touchdowns in the fourth quarter when you've gone into it down, but a lot of people do. How did that happen? What in the world? What did the bookies say? I don't know. But Super Bowl 54, a 31 to 20 victory for the Chiefs, and history was changed. Now that must have been exciting for the Chiefs, but devastating for the 49ers and their fans. And some would say that the Chiefs were persistent, strong, they persevered. They were resilient. They made a comeback. They were down and they bounced. I'm sure sports pundits will watch this San Francisco team for signs of resilience into the next season. Personally, I found the definitions of resilience to be kind of simplistic and maybe not all that helpful because they seem obvious. In the Very Well group, they describe resilient people as aware of situations, their own emotional reactions, and the behavior of those around them. They understand that life is full of challenges. They believe that the actions they take will affect the outcome of an event. They've got good problem-solving skills. And it's important to have good people around them who can be supportive. Then you've got to view yourself as a survivor, not a victim. And it's important to be resourceful. It's an important part of resilience. And it's also essential to know when to ask for help. Now, who among us doesn't know this already. I think most of us do, though maybe we, we forget until something comes along to remind us. I, I still, what is helpful about those words? Aren't those the common sense things that most people already know? But what I wanted to share with you today is maybe some of the things I hadn't already figured out for myself. And that idea of bouncing was one that I saw often as I researched this topic. Bouncing balls with sharp upward trajectories. 
and I was somewhat surprised that most of the symbols were of people rolling balls up mountains or holding up pillars and straining just to stay in the game. There were symbols like the one on your order of service, the growing through jagged rocks in a sidewalk. And for me, even that may be more a picture of power than what I was thinking of as the real truth about resilience. What I really was looking for was confirmation that some sort of survival after loss or trauma or grief is good enough, just good enough. No need for a show of strength or for fireworks or for popping up like a bouncing ball. After the death of her husband, Facebook COO Sheryl Sandberg co-authored a book in which she tells the story of how when she was 16 years old, she was skiing, and she somehow managed to get from the safe bunny slope onto a really difficult run. And her mother told her, you made a wrong turn. But you don't have to stay collapsed in the snow. She still couldn't figure out how to get down the mountain. And her mother said, take 10 turns. Take 10 turns at a time. And then 10 more. And 10 more. And she did that and she found herself safely at the bottom of the mountain. Sandberg said, I didn't have to aim for perfection. I didn't have to believe in myself all that time. I just had to believe I could make a contribution just a little bit more. And that's the definition of resilience that doesn't have us beating the odds or leading the way or chanting mantras like, I think I can, I think I can. Some days our greatest contribution may be to get through the day, to water a plant, to make coffee. Change that vision of skiing. Change it to maneuvering a wheelchair, to going up and down stairs, at your home, or nourishing and bathing yourself? How will you move through your grief or sadness or inertia? That's for you to decide. Sometimes with the help of others, sometimes with a counselor or a friend. But you're the one who decides how you will move on. And there are lots of countries or eras or historic figures we can think of as having made great comebacks. One that I chose was Muhammad Ali. He was born Cassius Clay, and he converted to Islam. And he was imprisoned at the height of his career, of his strength. And supposedly it was for being a, a draft dodger. He was a conscientious objector, but many think that part of the reason was because he had converted to Islam and he was such an amazing public 
figure. People loved him. They quoted him. And he said he was beautiful, and people believed that he was beautiful. Now, I suppose one way of looking at Ali's resistance was that he continued to box after losing games, losing his prime years to prison. But he was also known for his resistance to the Vietnam War, and he was awarded the Medal of Freedom. He had Parkinson's disease many years after he left boxing, but he continued to be a philanthropist and a social activist. And one of the things he said was, service to others is the rent you pay for your room here on earth. Perhaps he made some of his greatest contributions, not while he was jabbing and fighting and saying things like, sting like a bee, something about butterflies. A lot of people would say, oh yeah, that's, that's the definition of resilience. But his, his resilience also that he overcame a lot of things that had happened to him, a lot of the people that tried to keep him down. This is the way that he bounced, not loud in the ring, but quietly talking to the world about human rights. And then I want to take a look at Germany as a country that made a comeback. I don't know. Did Germany need to make a comeback? They felt they needed to. I find comparisons between Germany's Nazi history and the United States slave history fascinating. In the 2019, the Atlantic Magazine posted an article entitled there are no nostalgic Nazi memorials. Then went on to compare the nadir of, of the history there. Extermination of Jews and gypsies. Gypsies call themselves gypsies, so if it went into your mind that that's derogatory, it isn't. We just have thought of them in a derogatory way. Gays and those with deformities. This writer compared all of those things with the institution of slavery in this country. By the way, the genocide of First Nations tribes, theft of their land, and destruction of their cultures is not included in this particular article, but it could have been as it is also a continuing low point in our past and current history. The author of this article, Susan Neiman, is a Jewish southerner who lived in Germany for several decades. And the article is from her point of view, written after the destruction of a number of statues celebrating the Confederacy's war heroes. If you think about what happened in 2015, 
when a man went into a predominantly black church and, and slaughtered nine people. That's when the discussion of those symbols really came to the forefront. Ms. Newman informs us that the deliberate national penance that most Germans now take for granted offers a striking contrast with the ways Americans have confronted our own national crimes. She's been asked whether Americans, in contemplating a plantation home, Confederate statue, or some other monument to our nation's slave past, should emulate the way Germans treat Nazi memorials. And her response is, there aren't any. Germany has no monuments that celebrate the Nazi armed forces. However, many grandfathers fought or fell for them. Grandfathers here in America, we talk about um, the reason to have these monuments. Well, someone in my family died in that war, died on the Confederate side, and we're just celebrating our history. My great uncle wasn't a racist. Sentiments along these lines will sound familiar if you've been following that bubbling debate about the removal of Confederate flags and monuments across the United States. But there are no Nazi sites in Germany in the sense that there are plantation sites in this country. In other words, people don't get married at concentration camps or visit them for a sense of nostalgia. The only equivalent sites that now exist in Germany are concentration camps. We like to think that the citizenry of Germany were unaware of what was happening in those huge housing buildings. But that notion is dispelled by documents in museums such as the one on the site of Buchenwald, where as many as a quarter of a million inmates were held. People did know what was going on, just as we all know what's going on in this country. Some people touring southern plantations have complained at even the slightest reference to slavery, to which Ms. Neiman says, the idea that tourists would visit such a place seeking smiling women in dirndls, much as some visit American plantations looking for ladies in hoop skirts, she calls that idea obscene. Germany is in a state of resilience from its past. They're seeking to conquer their shameful past by honoring their victims, not by idolizing the persecutors. We don't know how much German society has worked to come to terms with this violent racist history. But it seems to me that this is a process that other nations, including our own, can learn from. Yes, it's true. I'm reading your mind. Nazi rhetoric is making a comeback. 
in Germany, as well as in the United States. But that does not diminish the fact that Germany has examined its legacy and has come to bounce back, to overcome, to make a comeback in terms of morality and ethics. And the third thing I wanted to talk about was our church. Our church, 176 years old, has had its difficult times. Some would be the Vietnam War. There was a split in the church over whether or not we should use this, our former building to counsel people who did not want to go to war, to counsel people who wanted to be conscientious objectors. There was a time when there were words over an old archway that someone decided they didn't like. And so one day, some people just went and painted over it. We had a minister who wanted to go to Selma, Alabama. And we didn't want him to go. He went because of someone with foresight. The president of the board saying, you go, I'll take care of it. That was Henry Sinclair. And if you look at our history, if you read read through it, you'll find almost nothing about Fred Lachane, who was that minister, who really went against what the congregation wanted. But thank goodness, someone said, we need to be on the right side of history. We need to be on the right side of history. And we've had a recent issue that's troubled us. We're grieving over the loss of our beloved minister. We're grieving over the loss of some rituals. But we're coming back. We are coming back. And we are, I believe, going to be stronger than ever. Maybe it took that, that difficult dip to make us realize how much we want to stay together as a church. How we want to work for our church and for our community. How we want to be the people, the congregation, the community. We don't bounce back like that, but we bounce back in a way where we can be gentle with each other, where we can look for hope with each other, where we can honor and protect each other. That's who we are. We're the church that keeps coming back.
May that always be so.